Actually, the the number of skills that we need, uh, Gavin, is is not big. That the teaching of the Buddha is actually quite small. In fact, there's right, only you can reduce that, it down to, to four. Mm -hmm. Or down to two. Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. Or sure, Dukkha, Sukha. Dukkha, Sukha? Okay. Precisely. Yeah. And uh, what we tend to do in the West, and we can see that, in fact, with, with uh, situations like carpenters or computer scientists. Both of them are skilled at a wide variety of tools. Okay. And so when those guys come to uh, the teaching of the Buddha, they expect, in, in this case, for there also to be a wide variety of tools. And then, in fact, Buddhism is actually cluttered with a whole bunch of different tools that various people have brought to Buddhism on their own. But when we go back to the original teaching of the Buddha, there's only one practice of meditation. He only gives one. That Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa made a point of that in Thailand, a Buddhist nation, and that caused, let us not call it flack, it caused research. And that it sure. proved correctly that the Buddha only taught one kind of meditation. If there is a, if we use the word meditation, and that is the Anapanasati. We could also think of it as the reason for that is because it's a complete practice. Okay. But that it's got four basic areas to it, and that is the Satipatthana. And that when we get that, that part going, so there's actually just the skills that are associated with the Satipatthana or the skills that are associated with Anapanasati. And literally those skills are on the Eightfold Noble Path. But that's where the, the skills actually come from. Sure. Um, does that start with, I'm content. I know I'm content right now. I can feel it. I'm I'm fine. I'm having a good time. Okay. I can't lie to myself about that. Then then who could ask for anything more? When you're asking for more, that's just adding dissatisfaction to it. True, but then you have to know why you're feeling content. It's your choice. Why not? Why have a reason? Who set your standards? What rules are you trying to follow? What diplomas do you want? Only if you feel the heat of, I mean, to remove yourself from dukkha or from suffering. I don't understand your question, your point. Um, so I kind of see it as two parts is like, I know I'm content right now. Sometimes people are content and they don't know why. And then contentment ends. So then they've fallen off the track of, so they don't know why they're not content and they don't know why they are content. Right. That's because they're not paying attention to what the mind is doing. They don't have the basic skills that we're developing. Right. Um, so then you continually need something to wake you up. Well, the Buddha provided specifically that. That's the breath. 
Perfect. A lot of people use what in our first conversation you had um, talked about like winning a sports game or scoring a touchdown or a, a goal or whatever. The um, feelings that associated with that, not those examples have no value other than to talk about the way that we would feel when we have a score or a, 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 a win. Correct. Yeah. Nothing is important about scoring a goal necessarily. Um, but with some other key characteristics of that emotional state being um, that the mind essentially disappears or becomes lost in that moment because stories, if you're like scoring a touchdown, you're not thinking about I have bills to pay, or um, I can't believe that person said this to me. There, the stories in the mind cease because you become totally absorbed in that moment. I wouldn't use the word absorbed, but I guess you could use it that way. But basically, we're feeling good. And the experience with the thought moments is on how good we feel. But right, it doesn't like when last. Sorry, go ahead. But it doesn't last long. That feeling, that exhilaration is only momentary. <clears throat> right. Um, well, that's because usually that's because um, because something else comes into their mind to disturb it. Right, because they have a new desire, because they just desire to score Precisely. the goal. Yeah, okay. Um, so that's when you talk about the grandfather clock working correctly is when it's silent. Or like, you know your ear is working when you can't hear your ear. Because if you can hear your ear, <laughs> it means something's wrong with your ear. That's kind of a... Generally, I don't understand that. I wouldn't call grandfather clock silent. I use grandfather <laughs> clock a lot, but they're, they're not. In fact, you, you know it's working, and you know it's not working when it's completely silent. Duca, duca neurota, duca, duca neurota. Well, yeah, it goes tick, 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 or whatever. And so... The, um, In, in any case, we do uh, bring ourselves into states of exhilaration, states of joy, states of happiness, contentment, whatever different degrees and gradients you want. But they often don't last very long because something will come up into the mind that hinders the mind to hinder it from being in that state. And so this is the practice of Anapanasati is to practice of paying it using the breath as an anchor to remember to look at what the mind is doing. But we've got a choice and you can put in the mind what you want to put in the mind. I agree, but yeah, I agree.
<laughs> What's the but? There's no but. Okay. All right. Yes. That we do have a choice. That's that's the teaching of the Buddha. That uh, that you could say in our language, the word choice is what we actually in Buddhism get stuck up in language of anatta. If there is an atta, that means that you don't have any choice. And that they teach that in the sense of uh, that uh, karma and the results of karma, that you will, if you do a bad action, you will get a bad result no matter how long it takes. Even if the old karma machine or God or devil or so whatever has to dig you up just to kick your ass. Okay, that's a, that's the old teaching, and that that means that the um, things don't get dead and buried, and you can see how that happens really within culture. An example of that is uh, that in fact the politicians even know this that once a law is passed, it's almost in perpetuity it's very difficult to get any law that has been passed unless it's got a grandfather clause to it where it dies itself but if a law has no grandfather clause in it then it's very hard to repeal a law so our culture got started many centuries ago and it's still rolling on and we just live in in the same culture and nobody, even those who can look at the culture and see what's wrong with it, they don't have the ability to change the culture because the mindset and too many people are set like that. But an individual himself can make that change. He can decide that he can change. And that's what the real teaching of the Buddha is, is that there is no self, there is no structure, or there is no set ways of doing things because of tradition, or because it's been that way, or because somebody said it like that. And now I'm actually uh, going down the list of items in the Kalana Sutta, which you probably have heard of. Don't take things by tradition. Don't take things because it was from a teacher. Don't think, uh, take it because it's common knowledge. Well, is that just the same as clinging to rites, rules, and rituals? That's exactly what that word is, is the silabata paramasa, is the clinging to, and we do it at a grand scale. And what we need to do is to see things from a new perspective, and that new perspective basically is an inspectional perspective rather than keeping a set of rules in place we need to dismantle those rules and place instead the observation in the moment of dukkha, dukkha, naroda. In other words, what's wholesome, what's correct, what's valuable in this present moment should be the only question or the only rule that we ever have. I agree. And then just being here is valuable. I mean, well, then enjoy it. Isn't that valuable? I enjoy, I enjoy these calls with you, Tamarato. That's why I'm calling you <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> yes, so this is why we use the breath, is to help wake up. That we can use it in both directions. One is, is that sati comes, and then we remember to take a deep breath. 
but we can also put some intentional effort into the breath itself. In other words, beginning to see how important it is to breathe consciously, to breathe well, and to pay attention to the breath in the sense that the breath is actually asking for attention. And we begin to pay attention to the breath. So this is a new perspective because you see the way that we've done it is, is that the breath can be controlled through two areas of the brain. They've done this with MRIs. And they've understood that when breathing is done normally, that it only lights up the back section of the brain, the same place that's close to where the heart is beating. Okay, so they can they can see that breath rate, breathing, and heartbeat are controlled by the same parts of the uh, back part of the brain, which are also very close to the pituitary and the penile glands, which they use for communications as well as other uh, chemical. Uh, things that are going on. But we can also control the breath through the frontal cortex. And so scientifically then, we can say that the teaching of the Buddha actually has some scientific relevance to it. Sure. And so by by controlling the breath, by lighting up that part of the uh, the brain, that actually then we, instead of breathing normally, we now start to breathe more naturally. Natural breathing is getting more air in, getting the body oxygenated, getting the body uh, uh, vibrantly alive, getting the mind full of uh, uh, blood that's useful to do this function. Okay, so learning to breathe well is beneficial uh, for uh, health reasons for the body itself as well as for the for the mind to wake us up. And so breathing uh, then, like I said, it can be done in two ways. One is the way of waking up naturally and then beginning to take the deep breath as we gladden the mind. But I'm going to offer you a new example of that. Have you ever heard of the concept of um, practice like your hair is on fire? That is urgent? Um, I don't know if I've heard hair is on fire. It's funny you mention that, though. You know, well, I, I actually just I, I finished the painting just the other week. It seems timely. Would you understand. like to see it briefly? No, 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 that's okay. Um, but we're we're talking about the that sense of urgency or the sense of practice with our hair on fire is very, very much like with Anapanasati. We can practice it as if it is um, not just valuable and wholesome to breathe well, but it's a dire emergency. Almost like we can think of it in the sense that you have two minutes to live, that you have a death sentence that will be imposed upon you from who knows where every two minutes. If you don't take a breath, you're going to die. Sure. Okay. Which means then that, that the breathing that we're doing is actually life-giving. It's life force itself. 
and we could should be able to pay attention to that, that this is life-giving. I mean, actually think about that you're being held underwater and you can't breathe and you're about to die. And then all of a sudden, the weight gets lifted off your chest or maybe you've reached the surface and you can take that deep breath. Wow, what a relief. I'm again, I'm alive. I, I made it. <laughs> I made it, yes, okay. <laughs> That's the feeling that we want to present in Anapanasati. That's the pity that oh, I'm alive. I made it. Um, that's because it's more because you're getting tighter and tighter with your mind moment if you're doing that. Mm -hmm. Exactly so that we're really paying attention when we pre appreciate the breath. And so that now we're going to say, okay, I need to pay attention to the breath. I'm going to actually put a new kind of right effort or a new kind of intention in there that I'm really going to start paying attention to the breathing because it gives me life. It gives me uh, uh, everything. If I don't breathe, I don't, I don't live. There's nothing else like that. Food, water, sex, transportation safety, clothing. I don't know of anything that is quite as immediate as this next breath. Partly because the skin is intact. Now, if you had an open gaping wound and all of the blood was draining right out of you, that's another <laughs> issue. <laughs> but that's not occurring right now. But you do need to take that breath. If you stop breathing, you're going to die. And we need to see that kind of quality to it of how valuable this breathing stuff is. And so we gain a new kind of appreciation with it, and this is why we're calling it now an anchor for mindfulness. To mindfully breathe in is also to use the breath to bring up mindfulness, so that it's a two-way street. So that we can mindfully take in a breath and appreciate it and be there with the breath. So the kind of thoughts that we have to gladden the mind are going to be the kind of thoughts about how marvelous it is that I just took this breath. I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah. Well, how nice it is just to sit here and just be alive. Yeah, truly. So this is the quality that we're looking for, is, is to use the breath as a motivating anchor to keep bringing sati back over and over and over again so that we can regain that appreciation for being alive again. And sati is remembering? Sati is to remembering. They call it anapanasati, to remember the breathing, to remember you're still alive. And that brings joy, gladdening the mind and pity and sukha and a sense of well-being. Yeah. It's a very natural process. When you allow it, when we can remember, when we start putting this emphasis upon it, our seeing still seeing it starts seeing it with a new set of eyes. Right, being like a, being like a child. Being right, beginner's mind again. Exactly. 
This is just marvelous. This thing that we've been doing so many years, so often and so long and so frequently that we've become bored with it actually is the best thing we got going. And you become bored with it because you don't actually experience it. You just tell yourself a story about what that thing is in your mind. And it's Mm -hmm. ultimately unsatisfactory. And, And not only that, but it leads to more stories. And so we get lost in telling ourselves stories. And many of those stories are standards. It's like not just stories, but they've got morals to them. The right morality the rituals. Mm-hmm. Back into the rice rules and rituals all stored up in those stories. But that's what the story is all about, is what you should be doing next time. Why tell a story just for the entertainment purposes now? The answer is, yeah, that's the right way to do it. If you're going to tell a story, at least don't make a rule out of it. (laughs) That's what stories are normally for. And that's why we never... (laughs) There's an old story that that we can put it backwards in this case. But the story is, is that The woman was very exasperated with her two boys. They were twins, but they were completely opposites. One was a complete pessimist and the other was a complete optimist. And so she took him to the psychiatrist and being a psychiatrist and all the dualities he's got, he decided that since it was close to Christmas, give all the kids, all the toys to the miserable kid. And then to give a 55 gallon oil drum full of horse manure to the uh, optimist boy, okay? And so she did that. No Christmas morning, she goes and she opens the door of the pessimist and there he is sitting with all those toys and he's banging them and he's beating them and he's frustrated and he's angry and and she says, what's going on? And he says, I don't like any of this stuff. And she says, well, you just play with it. She closes the door. She goes to the door of the boy with the uh, 55 gallon and there he is standing in the barrel, lifting this uh, each individual turd up like this and going, with thee, with thee. And she says, what are you doing? And he says, with all of this horse shit, there's got to be a pony in here someplace. <laughs> that's a good one. That's funny. Okay, well, that's the typical mindset is, is with all of this horseshit that we keep putting up with, there's got to be a pony in there someplace. That's the delayed gratification. Hmm. And so both of these young men are uh, blind. Because one's the optimist, except that he's putting up with a bunch of horseshit. And he doesn't Sounds recognize like he's enjoying the horseshit, though, honestly. Well, at least he's doing that much, but now he's got horseshit all over his room. How long is he going to be gleeful when he gets to the bottom of it and finds no pony? True. True. Exactly. So he's bound for disappointment that way. Um, Though, uh, if he's extremely lucky, he will stay Pollyanna, like he didn't need a pony anyway. And my side, my mom put this horse shit in this room. I she can clean it up. <laughs> so, yes, there's there is possibilities for him. But the point that we're making is, is that with the pony of the story, 
there's got to be some horseshit in there someplace, which is the moral of the story, which then makes some sort of rule. There's only one story that I know of that the moral is to stop having morals to stories. <laughs> and that's the story of Adam and Eve. You know, Adam the and Eve. Is good. Yeah, the knowledge of, uh, well, actually having to, to, to live with the results of their actions based upon the knowledge of good and evil. There they were in paradise, and paradise is paradise until you find something wrong with it. You start finding the evil in there. What are you going to do with your paradise when you start seeing paradise is evil? Happens to the best of it. Happened to Adam and Eve. <laughs> I don't know, but that story, I feel like they started to, instead of just being accepting and loving of what they were given, instead they chose, um, they chose the knowledge to make decisions. That's a close enough story. Exactly. That's exactly right. And because of their decisions that they made, they screwed up their paradise. Right. But, yeah. That's actually quite a beautiful story, which means don't take your knowledge of good and evil, which is the moral of the story. The moral of almost all stories that are, have morals to them, the moral is, is that this is right and this is wrong. But this story of Adam and Eve is a story about look what happens when you choose what's right and what's wrong. <laughs> you lose your paradise. And our first conversation, that's why um, the angel with the flaming sword is stuck with me is because I feel like um, I work as in design. So I look at a lot of symbols all day and just think about symbols sometimes. And just the idea of any sort of sword or cutting device being a symbolism of the mind. Not super important. Ah, sort of like but a, it can be used to cut stuff up that doesn't need to be whacked up. That's one thing, but it can also be used for discrimination to see what is wholesome and what's not wholesome. Right. Judgment versus discrimination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because well, which kind of angel are you going to be? This is, in fact, the story of Star Wars, precisely with the uh, lightsabers and uh, Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker is the good against the evil, and both are powerful. Flaming sword of justice or the flaming sword of uh, critical thinking. To the story retold again and again. <laughs> Same story over and over again, which when are we going to finally learn the lesson that we should not be going around uh, with the stories that lead to quest of good and evil, that good and evil are not at war with one another. They are only at war with one another within the religious mind of the human being. Well, about the like the dual mind, like uh, 
duality. Well, that's, what, that's the duality, but that duality is still within the mind of the ignorant human being. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's only within the mind. It's self-created. Mm-hmm. Which is the only place for doubt to arise. I mean, that tree has no doubt. This whole town has no doubt. This whole uh, island has no doubt, except in the minds of the people who are on the island that are doubting whether they should be here or not. <laughs> yeah, what's there to doubt about this instant? Here I am. Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. Exactly. This next breath is life-giving. No doubt about it. I don't have to worry about anything else. Been so, working long, it's been working well this long. It's probably just going to keep working. So, <clears throat> when we recognize that this kind of thinking, which can be called of critical thinking, judgmental thinking, setting rules, setting standards, attachments to rules and standards and whatnot like that, is one of the primary reasons why people are, are miserable and unhappy. It's partly because they can't make up to their standards. That we're very, very good at setting very high standards, and then we feel bad because we can't reach our own standard. Sure. I remember that specifically with myself in high school with Chopin's revolutionary attitude. I demanded that I learn to play that thing, and I never, I never did it. It was always sloppy. <laughs> I just could play it, <laughs> but I. <laughs> But it was a hard lesson to learn. Mm. Don't play music that you can't play. Play music you can play so that it is music rather than noise. <laughs> <laughs> Wanting something that we can't have because we set some sort of standard. And that would be just a memory you have of something I said you were like, that was my, like a story you're sticking to within yourself. Like, you're just, that's another story you're telling yourself that you have to do. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And almost always the stories we tell ourselves have that moral kick, which also, <clears throat> in another way of saying it gives us marching orders or it gives us a task to do. Something should be done. And that most of our human behavior comes from that kind of motivation. We don't do things because it needs to be done. We do things because we think it should be done. Okay. Like, for instance, the truck out there, the battery is dead. Okay. Now, many people will put that in the sense of that's something that should be done to where, no, really, it's a matter of the mind. The mind says that it should be done. It's the battery's fine, dead. Because you're going on the story, well, I have to get the truck to go to town because I need the grocery. Ah, but, then, but can we go into that story wisely so that we can see that, oh, I want the battery charged up so I can drive the truck. <laughs> right, so you're just recognizing... Because maybe I don't need to drive the truck right now. I can sit on the porch and enjoy the day. And tomorrow, right. maybe, I could charge the battery and go to town. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people will see the battery itself and says the battery itself needs to be charged. 
when in fact the reality is is that it's just saying they think that it should be charged. So like for instance, the society needs to be fixed. Except <laughs> one point about that is is that no, that's something that it, so many people think that it needs to be fixed. They think it should be fixed, and many of them are at odds with each other about how it should be fixed. <laughs> totally. And so it's not the society itself that needs to be fixed at all. It is my desire that it needs to be fixed. And, and what really day. needs to be fixed is my desire, not the society. <laughs> right. A, a bodhisattva is just someone who won't take his own advice. <laughs> well, that's an interesting point about the bodhisattva ideal. I can see the roots of it back in the time of the Buddha with the meta meditation, which was part of the teaching of the Buddha. That was another group. The, the um, the Metta Sutta has to do with, or some, one of the suttas about Metta anyway, has to do with that this is something that another group is practicing, and the Buddha points out the limits to that. But basically the issue is the uh, cause and effect, in the sense that we practice a Metta meditation as a cause for the effect to me have Metta out there. Hmm. Yeah, okay. that's like praying. Ah, you got it. That really what's going on is, is that if you have a clean mind, if you have a bright, shiny mind, that if you have joy, then you're going to treat other people with joy. And that's the metta. That metta is the result. It's not a causality. It's the result of other good properties. And practicing metta does not bring about metta. It brings about may all beings be happy and I have no evidence of being happy. A much better practice would be, may all beings be as happy as we are right now together. <laughs> <laughs> and may they be happy on their own without me having to order them around. Keep <laughs> <laughs> telling them what to do. <laughs> okay, so this is where the, the uh, Bodhisattva ideal comes from. May so that all beings be happy and uh, uh, be enlightened, and I'll be the last one through the gate. Well, what happens when you've got ten thousand bodhisattvas there arguing with each other? They're the last to go through, and they keep saying, "No, you go. No, I'm going to be the last one. I'm the big bodhisattva here. You go. You go. You're nothing. Go in there with all of those other people. I'm going to make a grand entrance at the end of the show. Okay. Oh, thank you, Bodhisattva, for seeing yeah. the door. I really appreciate it. Well, there's a whole new way of framing that, and that is I want the whole world to shut up so I can get some peace and quiet. In a way, then, the Bodhisattva is now the victim, not the winner. I would agree. So let's get some winners in here. I don't need the world to be anything. I'm okay. And if I'm okay enough, then the world is okay with me. I don't need to get the world fixed because the world's just fine with me. Got no beef with the world.
<laughs> and everything's okay, and there's no problems with the world. And all of those people are just confused about that point. <laughs> there, yeah, there's confusion for sure. Um, I don't even... It's a bright, um, you know, there's right livelihood and right, um, it's not like, it is ethics, but it's not ethics, right? Well, yes, there is right livelihood, or we could also think of it as right lifestyle, but right livelihood is basically that you're going to be careful that what you do is not going to be harming other people. So there's a classic list of things that would be uh, like you wouldn't be a bar owner or a bartender, you wouldn't run a still or a, uh, um, a distillery, that you wouldn't be manufacturer or selling weapons, you wouldn't be manufacturing or selling poisons because all of those products are directly engaged with harming people and anytime you have that mental formation you're not because you're not watching you're not in a mental formation of meta or whatever you're whatever wholesome thought you're having right so by doing things uh by having a profession that harms other people i <laughs> saw so the hand jokes oh. caused it to happen <laughs> oh really <laughs> A little bit faster than me still, I guess. I don't see your video coming on yet. Can you turn the video off and on again? Sure thing. Oh, there you go. I think it should be coming too. Um, okay, the reason I wanted to ask about that, though, is because also in the last time you were talking about key or the energy you take in. Go ahead. The energy you're taking in related to the breath um basically you know i've been eh, it's not important never mind <laughs> okay all right um it's it's life giving in the sense of oxygen uh chemist, I suppose, from a pure chemistry point of view, would either be fascinated with the exchange or bored with the point that, well, what else do you expect to happen? This planet is covered with oxygen, is one of the most um, abundant things there is. It has collected together and merged with any and everything that it can, and we still have a sky full of it. Sure. Okay. Which means it is quite abundant. But the other way of looking at it is, is that yes, and because it's abundant and it is life-giving, that means that Mother Earth is actually quite beneficial, quite wholesome in life-giving, that we have an abundance of it. But you have to take it in. You have to take that air in. And so breathing actually is a way of being reborn each time that you breathe. Hmm. 
And so beginning again. And so in and out and in and out, that's the way we go. But we have relegated that to a more primitive part of the brain because that's how the dogs are. The dogs, I don't think that it's possible to teach a dog or a pig how to do Anapanasati. Don't think it's possible. This is something the humans, that's reserved for humans to do. But also you could go so far as to say that the dogs and elephants and whatnot don't need to practice this because they don't carry the mother load of bad intentions, bad thoughts, and unwholesome things, basically rules that are broken around with them. So we need all of this extra energy just to put up with all of the burden that we're carrying by being human. And what is the burden? All the crap that you picked up your whole life that the dog forgets all about. You can beat a dog in the morning and in the afternoon or even uh, by lunchtime, he's back on uh, patting his, uh, you know, wanting you to pat his head and, and scratch him and whatnot. They get over it really quickly. That's one of the things that I try to teach uh, my daughter is, is that if she wants to fuss at the dog, as soon as the dog turns around and pays attention, now you glad hand the dog. You don't continue to punish the dog because the dog stopped barking or doing whatever. Right, that us humans think that things last much longer than they actually do. We will cling and hold to the past. Mm. Adults, they don't cling and hold to the past. If you beat a person in the morning, they're going to remember it all day and tomorrow too. <laughs> and they're not going to get over it. And so this is what relinquishment is all about, is to just drop all that stuff. Drop everything that has been missed that's been done, that's mistreated you, or this felt you've been mistreated in your life, and just forget all about it. Just drop it. Not worth carrying around. This present moment is the only breath. This is the only one that matters right now. Not what happened in the past. Yep. And yet we as humans, we carry all of this baggage with us that we use for all of those judgments. That's because every story that we tell ourselves has a moral to it somehow. It winds up being a rule to follow instead right. of just being an enjoyable little story. Well, that's why I think like Jesus said, forgive and forget. Like if you, if you can't forget, you haven't forgiven in a sense. Well, that's the whole point is, is that if you forget it, that the forgiveness was already there. That if you forget about it immediately, there's nothing to forgive. The longer you carry and remember it, the more you need to forgive. But when you find you forget all about it, then that's because it is forgiven. Hmm. So the better thing to do is just to forget it. Don't need forgiveness. You need to forget it. <laughs> Because then it didn't happen. It only happens because we keep remembering it, and then it happens now. Because that person on stage did something to me when I was still on stage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but now we can just enjoy the show. We don't have to uh, have uh, arch enemies. Right. That everything is cool. Even our own darkness. 
even our own darkness. Have you ever heard of Simon and Garfunkel? Sure have. <laughs> Simon and Garfunkel have a song, The Sound of Silence. And in that song, the first couple of lines is, Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk to you again. Okay, so remember that whenever those dark thoughts come, instead of being critical of them, nurture them. Say, Rick, I see you, old dark thought. Aha, uh, I see you, Mara. In other words, become friendly with yourself rather than seeing the darkness as darkness. Just see it as, yeah, that's a, a, a lesson to learn. That's something sure. useful. That I don't have to uh, punish myself because I'm not doing the way that I should be doing and setting standards for myself. That I'm, I'm not keeping standards anymore. Even the darkness is my friend. Everything totally. is worth learning from. So uh -huh, I see you, Mara. There's many places in the suttas to where that's the point of view. And yet we don't like it um, we don't like to 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 see or have pointed out our faults and our problems. Rather than recognizing that if we don't see our faults and problems, then they're just going to keep hurting us. But if we can see it and deal with it, we can get over it. And then drop it and forget all about it. <laughs> but if we continue to do it, then because we don't see that this is harmful, that this has got uh, uh, dangers to it. But once we wake up to the dangers, then we can find the escape and finish with that. Forget all about it. And so this is why we want to use the breath as sati to help us to remember to come back into the present moment and forget all about the past. Not just one event after another that we can forget about, but just forget the whole show in a, in a way. Let's, let's watch the show in front of us instead of uh, keep rehashing the old show in the mind. I follow. I get. Mm -hmm. And also, if, you're, if you can let your mind wander like into any of your memories, like... Um, it's expansive because you're not hiding anything from yourself anymore and you can. Expansive, yes. Infinite, not a chance. Sure, well, yeah, no, your, your memories aren't infinite. No way. No, no way. In, in, in fact, uh, the more we forget, the better off we are. Let's keep it simple. Let's keep everything really, really easy. Simple. Let's not have a vast mind and a vast memory. Let's just keep it simple. That's the easy way. So this is how we would practice. I like that. Sit, sitting down and waking up to this thought, to this breath, to making a choice of how we're going to breathe and making a choice about what thought we're going to have right now. And we can choose to have thoughts that are uplifting, joyous, happy, mm -hmm. gladdening, rather than having the ordinary thoughts that 
we're in the habit of thinking. Problem solving. I have a thought about that. <laughs> um, you're talking about sometimes beginners will think that they have to cease all thinking. But some thought, well, lots of thoughts. They can't do awesome. it. So they're failing and they want something that they can't do. Gladdening the mind, anyone can do. Sure. Stop thinking, not a chance. Well, yeah, you can ask you, or you say, I'm going to stop thinking for 30 seconds. No one can do it. You... If they cannot corral the mind, let us say this, that the mind is like a monkey jumping around all over the jungle. If they can't keep that monkey in one tree, how are they going to get the monkey to come out of the trees altogether? Join them. Right. Well, you're going to destroy his whole forest. No, you can't do that. Of course no, not. but you but you can give the monkey something delicious enough to stay in this tree. And then you can get the monkey to settle down and be quiet. Another way of thinking about it, when the horse is out on all over the pasture, there's nothing you can do. But if you can put up the fence to corral him, then you can make the, the pasture that he's in smaller and smaller until you get him down into a pen or a corral or even a stall. All right, so that's what we can do with the mind too. Can we get the mind down to a stall? Well, the first thing to do is get into a corral. It's like cultivating equanimity. Mm -hmm. or stillness. You can't cultivate equanimity if you can't cultivate joy. Equanimity is the result of joy. It's the, I would, is it the, the, the joy of feeling content and knowing why you feel content? Because you just continue to feel content. It's like, wow, I've had a lot of joy now. I guess it's just joy now. That's kind of equanimity. And so I can relax from even the joy. Yes, that's the whole point. Yeah. Uh-huh. You can't relax from hard times. You have to relax from joy. That's why it has to be developed. That's the important thing about the teaching of the Buddha, is that we have to stop one kind of thinking and have only another kind of thinking so that when you have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought, you can begin to put some gaps between the wholesome thoughts. So when the next thought that comes back is going to be another wholesome thought. We need to be that skilled at it. Most people, what happens is, is that they try to stop the mind, but the mind, but the thought that starts up eventually, very quickly, within one or two thoughts, is going to be an unwholesome thought. Like, oh no, I had it, I've lost it. <laughs> or a thought they become identified with. I was uh -huh. thinking about this wholesome thought. Or look thoughts at what I can do. Mm -hmm. Wholesome thoughts um, return the mind to silence. Yes, that's that's another one. That's delusional thinking. So I don't know why. Yes, I do. The Western mind is such that when they hear the stages, they forget about the stages and they get to the last stage. They get to the last act, the last scene of the play. It's like the Westerners want to not read the novel. They just want to read the last chapter or even the last page. Give me that epic battle scene. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. Let's go right to the epic battle scene. Let's forget about the love affair in the middle. So, um, bottom line oriented. This is why one genre will do, two is better, three is more, four is good, you know, that kind of way of thinking. So where the Buddha's teaching is completely different than that. Oh, no, enlightenment is the first jhana. Can you get into it and maintain it and stay happy, content with the mind sharp and focused, sukha, pity, no hindrances? That's the first jhana. Ordinary state, we're in it. Everyone's in first jhana at least part of the day. The question is, can you get it as a skill? Can you develop that as a skill, being completely content, completely wholesome with this breath, this one? It's like a flow state. So instead of achieving something for flow state, you say flow state is the point of my flow. meditation. The, the point is stillness of the mind. Because actually... No, you don't want to make the... No, stillness is a natural outcome of wholesome. Not at the outcome of trying to stop it. That's what they try to do. They take the effort to stop the mind, and the effort is to no make the mind wholesome. To give the mind something so beautiful, I want to be absorbed in this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we are absorbed, if you want to use the word absorption, then we're absorbed or in feeling good. We're paying attention to how good we feel. We don't have to talk ourselves into feeling any good anymore because now we do feel good. So we can stop talking about how good we feel and just feel good. That's the second genre. How good can you feel? Well, you got to stop talking about how good you feel in order to actually feel that good. <laughs> yeah. Because and that's something everything. that they missed. So you got to really practice getting the feeling good going by talking yourself into it and get really excellent at it in the first genre. By continuing to talk yourself like there's nothing else to say, but talking yourself into how good you feel. Wow, how nice it is. What a beautiful day. Oh, all the greens are so marvelous. All the wind is blowing so nicely. It's so pleasant. What a nice moment it is. So you begin to talk like that, you begin to feel that way. And then you can take a deep breath and you don't have to continue talking like that. You just... Ah, yeah, ah. I'm right on board. Excellent. Well, you go practice, Gavin. Go pray. Enjoy. Fantastic. I appreciate the conversation as always, Tom Morato. See you soon. Absolutely. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah.